Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Pixels, a podcast for the discerning gamer. Hello everyone and welcome to Pixels. This is a show where we cover the news from the video game world and industry from, from the past couple of weeks. My name is Patrick Beja and today we are going to be talking about loot boxes yet again. I know we're getting tired of it, but there are some important updates uh, that have happened in the past couple of weeks. Uh, we're going to be talking about sales and the games we've snatched during those sales and maybe the games we've played recently. We're also going to be talking about uh, the Reset Era, Re- Reset, Resetra, Resetera forum um, and the exodus from the other forum that may or may not be named. Uh, all of this, I'm really glad we can do because we have someone absolutely perfect to discuss all of these topics in the person of Daniel Ahmad, Jude EX, or also very difficult to pronounce. Stuff. Between the forum name and your own nickname, you like stuff that no one knows how to pronounce, Daniel. I do, probably because it's a Chinese name. Mm-hmm. So, people people will always pronounce it wrong. But uh, <laughs> talking about China, I do want to ask you about PUBG going to China via um, who is it? Tencent, I think. No, yeah, not Tencent. That's, that's yeah, oh, it, it is Tencent. And and yeah. they're gonna have to align with socialist core values, which is gonna be also <laughs> kind of what yeah. And uh, Hellblade breaking even a very interesting project uh, of. Triple A title with a double A team. I think that's a little, a little bit uh, disingenuous of a description. Um, it's the one the team sort of gave, but we'll talk about that as well. Uh, but first of all, thank you for being on, Daniel. Um, you are an analyst and a provider of fine dad jokes on Twitter. But mo- mo- mostly where you that's get your, your job is analyst for the video game industry, right? Yeah, that, that'd be great. And, and thanks for having me on, Patrick. It's always great to be on this podcast. I think, well, this is the third, fourth, third time? Yeah, third or fourth, third something time. like that. Yeah, one of them. And it's it's always fun just to discuss the uh, yeah games with the games industry stuff. And I, I couldn't dream of anyone better uh, to discuss all of this with than you, so let's jump into it. Um, the awesome. The loot boxes scandal is kind of the gift that never stops giving. Um, of course... Everything came about mainly through the Battlefront 2 issue where people revolted, gamers revolted, because it was the most egregious example of loot boxes Mm -hmm. that we've seen in the past few uh, weeks and months, although the sort of uh, issue had been boiling over for few months in the game industry. But now it's definitely uh, gone beyond the game the, the players and the game industry itself. Uh, some governments are getting involved. Um, we've had actually an issue reaching the Destiny 2 XP advancement uh, system, which is going to be changed by Bungie because uh, basically they were scaling XP to give you a little bit more when you were doing activities that wouldn't give you a lot of XP per hour, which was fine, like things like raid and stuff like that. 
but also scaling it down if you were making doing uh, activities that would yield a lot of XP uh, per hour, things like uh, public events and stuff like that. And people realized it's not like Bungie told people. It's just that people realized that their XP bar wasn't advancing a lot. And so that sort of came to light and it was definitely a deception. And the problem is that XP is used to give you the, the equivalent to loot boxes, the bright engrams that give you the rewards from loot boxes. So it can be seen and it probably is uh, to limit the amount of bright engrams that players are going to get by playing the game um, and Bungie very quickly acknowledged it and was like, all right, we're going to change it. Sorry, it's not working out. But it's kind of I, kind of iffy um, to mm-hmm. begin with. Uh, I, I still have a lot of love for Destiny 2. I think the loot boxes are not a problem there, as, are, as they are not in Shadow of War. Uh, but uh, before we get into it, do, how much do you think the rest of the gaming industry is looking at EA now and thinking... Man, we had a good thing going. Like it was, it was fine. It was a little bit like shady, but no one was complaining about it too much. Why did you have to go and ruin it by making a crappy version of it? EA, why? Like, do you think they got calls from like Kotick and and uh, the Gimo <laughs> brothers? Like, how how do you think it went? I think you know there is going to obviously going to be a bit of that. You know what EA has. Or at least what this this kind of controversy has brought about is a lot more awareness um, for, I guess, loot boxes and add-on content and microtransactions in general, and sort of how games are being designed today. And and the simple fact is that they they are being designed uh, to be service games and to kind of drive engagement and spend post-launch. So it's no longer about the you know sixty-dollar game anymore. It's about the sixty-dollar game plus whatever um, engagement and spend the publisher can get out of a, a player. And so I think, you know, that that kind of mantra in terms of games isn't going to change as much. I think we're still going to get service games. We're still going to get games like that, you know, with or without new boxes or, or microtransactions or whatever. I think the implementation of them is what's going to be looked at or perhaps changed or played around with in the future, it's clear that EA went over a line when they tied uh, loot boxes to the progression of, of your character in the game. Whereas something like Overwatch, which is purely cosmetic and it doesn't really affect gameplay that much, isn't as intrusive and it isn't as, um, I guess, predatory, if you want to use that language. And so, you know, those those types of games and services are still doing well. They're still generating revenue and you know, they have millions of players that play them. And so I don't think there's going to be too much of a pushback on those types of games. But, you know, if we start seeing more publishers go down the EA routes, you will start to see more pushback there. And so I think it's a case of publishers now, you know, looking at that controversy, learning from it and understanding um, the best way to implement this sort of um, post-launch monetization. Yeah, I think for me, I mean, I've expressed this sentiment in the past in the show. I, I'm not a big fan of loot boxes per se. Like if they weren't there, I wouldn't, you know, mourn their losses. Um, sure. But I do think they can be implemented in a quote unquote, I don't want to say responsible, but beneficial way in a game like Overwatch, uh, it's one example, or free-to-play games where it can enable free-to-play PC games. I think mobile 
is a lot more slimy and i think a lot of gamers are worried that the the mobile version of loot boxes will insinuate itself into the core gaming world of pcs and and consoles um but i think it can work and and we have a few examples of those in um in the the core gaming world and again i think overwatch is the best one because even people who don't buy loot boxes do get the benefits of continued development new heroes new maps all of those um but mm -hmm. yeah certainly uh, the case of battlefront 2 was kind of a uh, the one where everyone agreed no that's not the way to do it to, not to defend them but they sure. didn't have any chance any opportunity to implement uh cosmetic improvements or changes because the ip is tightly controlled by disney and they can't make like the pink stormtrooper or uh the 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 sure, sure. darth maul yeah. with pigtails or so that wasn't an option but still um although i would have liked to see darth maul with pink pigtails um so that's my thought on loot boxes. It can be well done, but the government's involvement is, I think a lot of people are hoping that they're going to ban loot boxes. That doesn't seem like that's what's going to happen. Certainly, there are a lot of governments weighing in with some proposed legislations. Mostly, it's gaming or gambling commissions looking at this and saying, we have to study it. There's an inquiry happening. But the preliminary thought is we should probably work with the industry to uh, put in boundaries and mostly uh, uh, warning labels or stuff like that, like treating cosmetics differently than gameplay impacting loot boxes. I don't think it's going to be banned outright, right? I mean, that's not where the governments are looking yeah, like I they're going, right? Anyone that's expecting you know, loot boxes in general just to be banned outright is probably going to be disappointed because that's not, What's going to happen? Neither is it what these, um, you know, uh, regulators, uh, regulators, or gambling commissions are looking into right now. At this point, there isn't anything that's suggesting, um, you know, regulations will be Im implemented. At the moment, it's all kind of you know investigative stuff. So right. they're looking into, you know, is for example, is is loot boxes in games going to be considered gambling? How does that affect uh, you know, console games? Let's just say mobile games. How can that be uh, communicated to the customer? You know, is it even gambling in the first place? There's all these questions that, that are being asked and there isn't anything concrete about it. And even if there was something concrete, there's still a lot of process. Uh, there's a long process they'd have to follow in order to get that um, implemented. Because right. right now, it's, it's a case of um, just trying to uh, understand, you know, where loot boxes fit in. You know, Peggy and, and the ESRB, for example, have said that this isn't gambling as such, but that doesn't mean that there can't be other regulation in place such as, uh, you know, publicly disclosing the drop rates or adding in a label on the packaging of the box, which would, you know, say this game has um, gambling mechanics or loot boxes or whatever it is. So, yeah, if anyone is, is, is expecting it to be banned, not going to happen. But that's not to say that, you know, these investigations won't lead anywhere, but don't expect it to be something that's, yeah, over the top and, mm. you know, outright banning or anything. Let, let's, let's play a um, what-if situation. Let's imagine that governments get super heavy-handed and they do end up banning entirely uh, loot box-like mechanics. Um, I think 
it wouldn't be the end of the world for the industry. I think it's it's very true that games games have budgets that have exploded over the past you know few decades. It's very true as well that games prices have not increased for thirty years. I think I made a calculations in a calculation in France, and the prices were. 70 euros in francs back then, um, 30 years ago. And if you take the uh, inflation into account alone, you get to 100 euros uh, for the equivalent of 70 euros, you know, 30 years ago. So definitely that is true. It's also true that the market is much bigger. Uh, you have a lot more uh, buyers for your product, so you can make up your money there. But whatever the case... Um, Games are more expensive to make, and the the even beyond that, the loot box mechanics are just additional revenue that is always going to be there somehow. But let's say they were banned, um, I'm pretty sure we'd see stuff going okay for the games industry. I mean, you could have microtransactions that don't involve randomness. I think that's one of the things people are calling for. Um, you could just sell skins or maybe heroes even, you, things that do affect gameplay. But the randomness is what rubs some people the wrong way. Um, of course, randomness allows you to sell stuff if you're a developer or an, a publisher more expensively, effectively, uh, than if you were selling it outright because people need to buy more to get the thing, to get a chance to get it. Um And also, I think it's very clear that there would be it's a, it's a nightmare for loopholes uh, if they were banned because you can sell it as and I think we've seen this in some countries like you buy a thing and as an added bonus for the thing so it's not a loot box you 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 buy the thing but you get a random added bonus on top of it which is in effect a loot box so you would have to ban those as well I mean it's a quagmire it feels like a uh, Pandora's box. <laughs> box um but but developers wouldn't suffer immensely with them if we banned the loot boxes well i think the, the uh, it, it's an interesting question but at the end of the at the end of the day loot boxes um you know it, let's say hypothetically they were banned it doesn't mean that they would um that publishers would stop looking at uh, at post launch monetization methods You know, for example, okay. So one one thing I can bring up is is what's happening in China right now, and so China is actually being quite at the forefront when it comes to uh, regulating games and then the games industry in general. So a lot of people don't know that, but you know they've implemented laws about loot boxes back in 2009. You know when they were running rampant in games, and a lot of that is because of the paternal kind of uh, government that China has, and then wanting to protect. Uh, you know, the youth and consumers and, 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 and the people in general when it comes to that sort of stuff. And so very recently in, in May of this year, they introduced some more regulations, which was effectively saying that, you know, you can't sell loot boxes with real money uh, or, or kind of virtual currency in a sense. And that you'd also need to disclose the drop rates for loot boxes and also ensure that those drop rates are public and that the results of the loot box distribution as public and also um you know um keep keep those results on the website for 90 days or something so and and in addition to that make sure that you can get the items from loot boxes in a in game 
without having to buy the loot box uh, itself. So the the reason that was introduced was because, you know, China was aware that the government there was aware that this could be seen as gambling. And so they introduced those regulations and policies so that it wasn't classed as gambling anymore, but still allowed publishers to implement it in a certain way that would make it not gambling. So the way that publishers do it now is that you can buy it with, uh, with in-game currency. And the loophole there is that you can use real-world money to buy virtual currency, which you can then use an in-game currency. So you're still buying it with real money, but there's three extra steps you go through. Mm. It's similar to what Assassin's Creed Origins did. And then another loophole that people found is that, um, yeah, as you said, you can bundle loot boxes with uh, extra items or whatever. And then that's what Blizzard has done in, in China. And that, that's how they've got around those regulations effectively. Um, there's nothing illegal about it yet, but obviously if China's government decides that, no, that's not acceptable, mm. then yeah, they can clamp down on it. But, it also, oh, go ahead. No, I mean, I think that, you know, if... If, if that was the case, that would probably be the best implementation of it, where it's regulated in the sense that they have to dis- disclose um, uh, the drop rates and all that and all that stuff. I don't think we're going to see an outright ban um, on these. Especially it's because that would be a, a huge, complicated mess that would apply to every single game and industry, and it just it, it wouldn't work out that well. And it's also, it begs the question of, other quote-unquote loot boxes like Panini stickers, you know, collections and games like Magic the Gathering. I had discussions with people on Twitter where I was genuinely asking, like, Magic the Gathering is loot boxes. Like, those games we've grown up with, um, those Panini stickers, the the Yu-Gi-Oh! and and, uh, Pokemon trading card games, they are loot boxes as well. And I don't think they've ruined the the you know youth as it's often uh you know put forth as an argument like oh it's it's predatory for kids yeah i can see that i can even agree to an extent but it's uh, to me it doesn't feel like gambling as because you can't make money out of it now the definition of gambling is kind of fluid so i can see how it could be considered gambling but so the bottom line mm-hmm. for me is I really don't think it's gambling, but I do agree it is something. Uh, I don't know what, but it is something. And it's, it's, I can see how it would require extra stre- steps in regulation. But I think ultimately a, a solution that seems reasonable um, would be to have labels, warning labels on, on the games um, saying this game has random-based post-purchase uh, 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 transactions. Basically, this game has loot boxes. Sure. Um, having the, uh, the, the percentages more obviously displayed, I think, could be a good thing. Uh, could be informing the consumers a little bit more. That could be beneficial. Uh, and potentially, not certain yet, but maybe some age restrictions, especially on loot boxes that include gameplay elements. If it's all cosmetic, I think it's more acceptable. But if it's gameplay elements, maybe restrict to, I don't know, 13, 16 years old, something like that. And I think that seems like a reasonable compromise for everyone. Um, a lot of people on Twitter were uh, agreeing with a, a poll I made. Not everyone. There were still some people who were saying, just ban it completely. But those three things, uh, 
warning labels, percentages, although percentages, you know, statistically, we basically know them if you look for them. But still, it's good to surface sure. them. Um, so warning labels, percentages, and maybe um, age restriction for some of the things seems like it would be a good good compromise. What, what do you think? Do you have another idea to throw in there if if we were talking about what we we would like to see happen in that field yeah i mean going back to your point about you know trading cards blind bags and all that sort of stuff it, it is very similar in in the sense that if you look at some of the top selling products this holiday you've got the hatchmores collectible stuff which is effectively you know blind bags or whatever um and they get random uh hatchmores and then you've got to collect them all so mm. it's It, it's a very similar sort of thing when it comes to the psychology behind it. And that's why, you know, across loads of industries, you'll see that sort of stuff. And yeah, a lot of it is targeted at kids, whether it's Star Wars Battlefront 2 or whether it's these kind of, you know, Hatchmores or Pokemon trading cards or whatever it is. You know, it it is it is there and, and, and that's just what, what it is. And so, you know, if... if I mean, it, it is there. And I, I mean, we grew up with those as well. And I think the, the dramatic nature of all of this is being overemphasized a little bit. Like, oh, it's predatory and it's gambling for kids. It feels like, you know, it's cigarettes and booze being forced into your kids, you know, six-year-old's uh, uh, courtyards. I think there's a little bit of over-exaggeration there. We grew up with all of those. And I think we, we grew up okay. We're not, you know, addicted to to pokemon trading cards so sure there's a little bit I mean, of, of measure that needs to be inserted into that conversation it feels yeah i mean you'll see on, on, on the backs of those packs as well that they have um you know guidelines and warnings and, and kind of the, the drop rates and stuff for that right. so those some of those are regulated and some of those already do and you know at the end of the day the, the fact that you can actually sell those cards if you want i mean it, it does make it closer to gambling as you say the definition of gambling is fluid but You know, in in a sense, it is it is a very similar thing, and the only difference is this is digital and that's physical. Um, so that's that's the major difference. And I think that you know, there's there's going to be a lot of conversation around it in terms of you know classifying it and and what would, what would uh, be the best appropriate way to deal with those sort of uh, transactions. I think at at the very minimum, you're going to get the regulators say stuff like, um, okay, just implement parental controls. So that, you know, children can't access it. And at the maximum, we're going to get, okay, well, it's going to have warning labels and, and drop rates disclosed and all that stuff. Mm. So, you know, you, you saw a very similar thing on, on mobile games. Uh, it wasn't loot boxes per se. It was more kind of just general add-on content and, and in-game app purchases. So in-app in purchases. And so that was solved by just saying, okay, we'll put parental controls on it and put right. warnings that, you know, this, this includes in that purchase and all that stuff. Mm. So I think that's what you're going to get out of this instead of the whole loot boxes being banned. And I think the people that do want loot boxes being banned have to sort of reconsider it a bit because this sort of stuff exists across a lot of uh, entertainment uh, sectors, you know, and, and kind of kids' toys and, and digital games and whatever. And so... It's something that, that's already there and that is regulated and expecting to be banned, probably not going to happen. Expecting to be regulated, sure, that, that's, a, that's a reasonable take on it. And it's, it's something that, you know, I, I push for myself. Mm. And, you know, at the, at the end of the day, with the free market that we have, you know, if there's a game like Battlefront 2 where you don't like it, um, 
then, then or, or you're not a fan of the, the monetization, yeah, first of all, don't buy it. Second of all, make your voice heard to the developer or the publisher. You know, in a, in a calm manner, write into them by email or something and say, these are the reasons I'm not buying it or I'm, I'm not supporting your game. If you make these changes, then yeah, I'll buy it. And and obviously, you know, you can inform others as well. There's no need to shame people if they're going to buy the game anyway. That's their choice. You know, I, I have friends who will buy it, some friends that won't buy it. Uh, it's entirely up to them because at the end of the day, it's an entertainment product. It's not a... Yeah, yeah, I think the the voices thing. the voices of some people who enjoy this game even as it is is being drowned out by a few very angry voices and this actually what you're saying is giving me an opportunity to push back on the very very angry voices we've heard in this debate and I understand the value of anger. I think sometimes it's it is needed and maybe in the case of Battlefront 2 maybe some outrage was necessary. Um I sure, I yeah. I think, yeah, maybe it's possible, but I do think that in some cases, gamers especially, but people in general, on on YouTube, you have a few people that are almost specializing in anger, you know, and they're taking the voice of, uh, hey, I'm the common person voicing your outraged against the man you know and i I represent the, the man is out to screw you and f them because this and that and and it feels to me extremely well maybe not hypercritical uh maybe for some some of them they're genuine but that the fact that you know i make this analogy and i've talked about this in a few episodes in a few different shows already anger sells in the same way that sex cool. sells you know and and that anger that is being peddled, I, I now I've taken to calling them like anger mongers because I think it fits. They're selling you anger because of because anger makes you more likely to follow them and like them them and be angry and like it is their commerce. This is what they do. They sell anger, and I think it's very important to be aware of this. I think anger is ultimately a very negative way of approaching these issues because it it clouds your judgment. It makes you not able to see what the problems are um, and ultimately how to fix them in a way that is uh, durable and reliable. So I, I just wanted to take the opportunity to talk about this, this anger sells issue is very real and especially in the video game industry. And those people that make their uh, living out of peddling anger, I think is not, it's not a healthy, healthy thing. And when there are things that need to be said, of course, we have to say them. And I think in the case of Battlefront 2, it was said, absolutely. And it needed to be said. And in the whole loot box debate, probably it needed to be discussed as well, but it was. And this idea that the game industry is circling down the toilet and that developers are there to screw you over and that, you know, it's the man against you. It's like, it is so much, again, people selling anger because the game industry is incredibly diverse in the sense that there are so many things existing right now. Like, you know, you have AAA games, of course, but you have small indies, you have small developers that that create games that are in the middle between the two and a, a whole range. And in all of those, we have so many great products. I mean, we've been spending the last two years telling everyone, oh my God, there have never been so many great games in the world. So it is the industry 
is working better than it ever has. Um, I mean, sure, there are issues that we, we need to address. Loot boxes is one of them. Maybe the way some of the developers are being pushed and the uh, crunch time. And there are issues. I'm not saying there aren't. But if the argument is the industry, the industry is rotten, I think this is anger peddling, anger mongering. It, the industry or the games have never been better in any way you want to look at them. So anyway, that was my little, uh, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> rant for the day. No, I mean, I, I do agree with you. And I think obviously that there's, there's some people out there who do a really great job on, on YouTube or, or whatever platform. Yeah, of course. I, I didn't mean consumers. to imply that I hate no, YouTubers. No, no, I, That's I, not I the case. Yeah, But, but, but I, I do agree that, that there are some that, you know, who who will put anger before facts. And I think what, what that does lead to is sometimes you'll get, you, you know, some people who will send death threats and get overly angry and kind of not see the full picture. And I think that one thing that, that people need to do is, first of all, not trust everything or, or not, or not um, you know, blindly believe everything that someone tells you straight away, especially when they're the person that's, you know, screaming the loudest or, or whatever. You know, take some time to to look at the facts. Do the, do some research yourself. I know that's not something that everyone can do, but you know, getting a, a wide variety of uh, of opinions before just kind of you know letting confirmation bias take over well, is, I, is. I would say better. get sources you trust first and learn to trust them. And and screaming the most loud is not a, a criterion for for getting trust. Right? I think that's important. But getting the people that you trust is something that is key but yeah sorry keep going and, and yeah i mean i've seen a few uh youtube videos where you know they have a good point but the the evidence that they use or the facts that they that they present um in general are incorrect and so yeah you know you have to kind of look at that and 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 actually because don't get me wrong. Some of these YouTube videos actually have a good overall point. Like they, they actually want to get across this this reason, but the way they get to that point is 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 incorrect, and, and it leads to a lot of misinformation, and then that's used against you know to prevent the person publishers or whatever right. in in an incorrect way. I mean, one thing that I want to say just quickly is that you know the whole reason we're having uh, this debate is is purely because of the switch we've seen in the uh, games industry over the past decade in that a lot of publishers these days are moving towards service games instead of uh, instead of kind of fire and forget games. So what that means is, you know, you go back 10 years ago, you have a game like Uncharted 1, for example, uh, where it's a single-player game, 10 hours, 60 bucks, that's it. Now you have games like Destiny 2 or Grand Theft Auto 5, where the whole experience is, is more online-based and it's, it's encouraging you to engage over a long period of time. And there, there are a few reasons for that. So one of the bigger ones is that, I guess, you know, they can, they, the the consumer base on consoles is, is a lot more engaged this generation than last generation. It's also a smaller user base. Um, just purely because we had stuff like Wii last generation and Nintendo DS and all that, you know, PSP stuff. Whereas this generation, you've got, you know, a couple of core consoles that are selling well. And, because of that, in particular, there's um, a push to kind of generate more revenue from from each individual player. And at the end of the day, average revenue per user is actually increasing a huge amount um, because people buy more games, first of all. 
people are willing to spend more in in games, you know, the expansion packs or uh, microtransactions or download content or loot boxes or whatever. And so publishers are, you know, implementing more of that because they know that the people are going to buy it. And, and the second reason as well is because in general, you know, you have seen um, the publishers, the top 10 publishers at least. And, and bear in mind, when I say all this stuff, I am talking about AAA style publishers. Right. So the, the top eight publishers um, account for about 80% of the total package software um, sales in the US, just to give you a vanilla quote. So these guys make up, you know, the, the huge amount of sales and, and huge amount of the market, just those eight publishers alone. You know, that stuff like uh, Activision, Take-Two, Ubisoft, etc., uh, EA. And so what they want to do is hold on to that market share. And so they want to create games that are going to sell in big numbers and in, um, in, into kind of, you know, uh, as many people as possible and as profitable as, as, as possible. And so they are creating games, they're creating less games every year in order to do that. Uh, one, because in general, game development is getting more, um, you know, if, if you want to create games at a high level, you need more resources, more time, more money. That's why games take, you know, three, four years to develop from, uh, these days compared to the standard one year or two years before. Yeah, I've, I've heard a lot of people mention that we don't see those kind of crappy, half-assed games uh, that we saw a few years ago. And that corresponds, that correlates, I guess, with the increase in quality of games that we've seen over the past two, two years. And you're right, developers develop a lot less games with roughly a, a, a much higher budget per game. So they spend a lot yeah, more time, talent, and energy on each one. It's because those smaller games don't sell as much. Again, when, when you command 80% of the market, the other 20% doesn't really, you don't really want to compete there because that's everyone else. And so, you know, releasing smaller games, yes, you'll see, you know, Ubisoft release stuff like Grow Up and you'll see EA, EA release stuff like A Way Out and all that stuff. But, you know, those games don't generate the same sort of return that a big AAA, you know, Battlefield or uh, The Division or whatever would, would generate. And so the, the publishers are, are putting... Um, money into development, they're putting money into marketing, because at the end of the day, they want to create the best product out there um, that's above the competition. They want to market it to everyone that they can. And that's why you have Overwatch, which has 35 million players, whereas a smaller game, which tries to be Overwatch, can't really compete on, on that level. And so, you know, that's what they're trying to do, and, and that, that's why they're doing it. And, and the simple fact is that budgets have increased. That, that's a fact. Uh, the overall spend may not have for, for some publishers, but when you look at EA, who are publishing 50 games in 2010, now they're publishing six or seven games every year in right. 2017. You know, the actual amount they're spending per game is is a huge amount. And, you know, that's why uh, a game that's a service game is more likely to be greenlit because you can spend $80 million on a single-player game And then have to spend, have to sell, um, you know, a certain amount of copies to make your money back. Or you could spend $80 million on a service game, sell the same amount of copies, but also have a post-launch monetization model, um, which keeps players engaged and keeps them spending over the lifetime of a cycle. That's why Grand Theft Auto V, for example, has been so profitable, not just in full game sales, but in, um, in actual, you know, post-launch content as well. 
right. you know, through the shark class that they have. And that's also why games like Rainbow Six Siege continue to sell really well every month. That's why it's selling so much. Whereas a game like, you know, for example, Wolfenstein or, um, you know, a single player game will have a limit on how much it can sell purely because people aren't engaged after that five, six, seven, eight hour game. And they're not going to recommend it to their friends to come and play with them online or whatever. Right. Constantly so, months, months after the release. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And so that's why those games, you know, are, are actually underperforming for, for Bethesda. That's why Agents of Mayhem didn't do that well. That's why a lot of single player games well, actually I mean, haven't done that well. And I mean, one, one thing I'll say finally is that a lot of people say to me, okay, but what about games like, you know, Sony first party, Nintendo first party? What about Neo Automata and all that sort of stuff? And yeah, you're right. Those games do exist. And the reason for their single player games existing, uh, when Nintendo and Sony, for example, is one, they have a complete, completely different strategy to third party. They don't really want to compete with third party AAA. They want to get people on their console. So they'll make games for a wide audience. Secondly, uh, those games in general, um, that the margins on them are a lot higher for Sony and Nintendo because Nintendo and Sony will charge Activision, you know, ten dollars to publish each game, uh, you know, each individual game on their on their system, whereas Sony and Nintendo don't pay that cost. So they actually right. end up earning a lot more from their games. Uh, if, if, for example, they sell eight million units, and that would give them more money than if Activision sold eight million eight million units. So that's the uh, the logic behind it. And with Neo Automata and all that sort of stuff, those are more AAA games. So those are more AA games, right, more mid-tier yeah. games. You've also got this whole indie audience, audience as well. So yeah, as you said earlier, there is this, this, this kind of bigger market outside of AAA that is still making single player, is still um, you know focusing on other type of genres and elements and, and all that sort of stuff. And so you'll find that, yeah, they, they will implement service elements, but there's still games that I think a lot of people will find were around 10 years ago or whatever. Mm. Yeah, no, I agree. And I think the ultimately, when I look at the offerings that we have in the market right now, for you know the reasons that you explained very well, we still have a very wide breadth of different types of games. Because for all of the, 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 the issues that may exist with the single-player games, we have them, right? Yes, they are first-party because, you know, better returns, but they're still there. And we have very compelling, um, we have very compelling offerings for the, for the single-player games. And the other thing I want to I mention is that some people might think, wow, it's terrible that the business model is influencing the game design. And, and this is, I think, very naive, because for the entire history of the gaming industry, that's been the case. I mean, even its its inception, um, like arcades, where the, the design was literally making sure the player would die every five minutes so that they would put another coin in. And so obviously it's always tied to that. And, and hopefully the game designers make the best of it. But it, I'm also reminded of the outrage about uh, DLC a few years back when people were saying, oh, sure. you're cutting the game in different pieces and then selling back to us. And, and that was a problem initially, but then the balance was found. And, and now, as I often say, DLC is like, you, as long as you get a fully complete, full-fledged basic game, 
then the DLC is more content for those who want it. And if you don't want it, you don't have to buy it. And I think that works really well uh, for people who really like a game. And um, to to conclude this, I do want to mention about the outrage and anger that it robbed us of a rethinking of the model around DRM with the Xbox One when it was first announced. Um, there were some bad things in there, but there were also some good things, like the fact that you could resell a game that you purchased digitally. You could resell it, you could lend it, you could do stuff with it. And the outrage was so blind and strong that it got all shut down i think with reason because microsoft definitely you know jumbled that message and did a mess of it a uh, legendary mess actually but the result is now we have digital games that we purchase and can do nothing with and that is not a great thing for consumers so the whole point is when someone promotes anger, it's kind of like, you know, the two magic things like this is to protect the children and this is terrorism. This is to fight terrorism. Whenever you hear those two things, you should take a second, take a step back and really think an extra minute about what you're being told to make sure it's actually the case. And I think when the message is being uh, per, uh, conveyed with a lot of anger, you should have the same reaction. Doesn't mean it's wrong. Doesn't mean the underlying uh, conclusion is wrong, but it warrants that extra minute, that little bit of measure, couple of steps steps back. All right, what am I being told here? So anyway, yeah, that's I the mean, conclusion with, for me. <laughs> and, and with Microsoft, I think, you know, that's a perfect example of how businesses are run in terms of they can very easily now just have it so you can sell your digital games but they haven't implemented that at all and it's because as a business they want to find uh you know you know what's going to work with them what's not going to work with them obviously they will try and be as pro-consumer as possible because they want sales at the end of the day yeah within but, the yeah as long as it yeah, serves their their bottom line their, then yeah their bottom line then yeah they'll then they'll do whatever so you know there's because by the way because of competition because if they aren't yeah, sure. as pro-consumer as they can, then someone else might be, and then they'll... That's how it works. But, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, that, that's that been the case with, you know, game designers, you know, for decades now. And so thinking that one company is doing something better is, is good, but at the end of the day, they're, they're still looking out for the bottom line. And that's how all businesses work. Uh, that's just a simple fact. I hate to be cynical, but <laughs> that's how it is. And so... Um, you know, there, there are a few positives to the way that game games are being made today. Um, yes, obviously, a lot of it is about design, about engagement and spend. But the fact is that, you know, service games are, are starting to solve some of the issues with, um, you know, how games are distributed in the sense that, you know, a lot of the content now that comes out is, is for free. So, for example, with Star Wars Battlefront 2, all the content is for free. Grand Theft Auto 5, all the content is for free. And it's monetized through... Um, in a microtransactions on loot boxes or whatever. And so that solves the issue with, you know, season passes, for example, where only people who pay five bucks, 10 bucks, whatever, would get access to the extra maps or the extra content or, or whatever comes out. And at the same time, that benefits developers and publishers because it means that people aren't fired at the end of, a, at the end of shipping a product or that they aren't moved to different, um, 
you know, they aren't glued ground or, or, or reshuffled or fired or whatever. And the fact that they can continue working on that game and putting out content uh, and, and have that funded by you know, gamers or, or whatever. Yeah. I think, yeah, I think there are a lot of considerations. Those are definitely positive aspects of those post, um, you know, release content and, and transactions, which if the angry mobs had had their say a few years ago, then they wouldn't uh, uh, happen today, which some people are going to say, oh, why don't you do it like this, like this other game that sells and then that's it. And But it's not, you know, not every game has to be exactly the same. I think there are many great games that work that way. There are some other games that work a different way. And so ultimately in all of this, this super complicated mess of different parameters and demands and, and requirements and needs, that's why I take the slighter, you know, longer view, which is how are games today? And again, I don't think you can have it both ways. Everyone has been saying for the past few years, we've never had as many good games, period. Like indies, double A, triple A, all like it's all amazing how the industry is behaving right now from the, the output uh, point of view. So you can't have it both ways. You can't say all of these amazing games are coming nowadays and we have like embarrassment of choices of riches for game of the year this year. And at the same time saying, oh, it's all going to shit. The industry is crap. You know, you, you just can't have it both ways. So anyway, um, and, and some people are going to say, oh, but I'm looking down the line like two, three years. Yeah, sure. Of course, that's a cop out, I think, so, because the complaints have been happening for, for a while. Anyway, we're being vigilant. I think it's important, um, but do it with actual thought and measure and, and facts and not with mob mentality and anger. Yeah, and then one final point I just want to bring up really quickly sure. is that, you know, at the end of the day, there there is that supply demand, um, you know, kind of factor in play. And at the end of the day, if if, if companies are putting out products and, and people are buying them, um, you know, there's there's not a huge amount uh, that people can do other than vote for their wallets and, and obviously, um, you know, tell the developers they're not going to support certain business practices or whatever. But from from the way that, you know, I'm looking at the industry and from, from the data that I can see and from speaking to others, there isn't anything to suggest that there's been an impact uh, across other companies in terms of their post-launch monetization methods or kind of revenue from that. You know, games like Overwatch are still doing extremely well. Games like uh, Grand Theft Auto Five obviously are massive, huge. Destiny is also doing, you know, relatively well. They need to fix a few things there, of course. But once they do, and once they listen to consumer feedback and 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 kind of, you know, pivot the, the games they need to, then yeah, you know, these these games are actually doing quite well and they're profitable. They're selling well, and at the end of the day, the mass market consumer is actually, you know, fairly open to these to these games. And I think a lot of people actually are, but there are obviously lines where you know people don't want companies to cross i think that's good that they're being drawn now rather than later yeah there's definitely going to be as we said in the beginning we're coming full, full circle there's going to be consequences to that whole scandal people are going to be companies are going to be a little bit more reticent to implement things that cross the line um they if we do end up getting warning labels and stuff like that that's going to have a deterring effect as well which is probably a, a good thing so ultimately things are going the way they should and the industry is being corrected and we're finding balance and 
I don't think we need mob mentality to achieve that. Maybe we do, but I really don't think so. Uh, because mob mentality didn't do anything against, you know, Shadow of War and Destiny, because those games, if you look at them, as I did when I played dozens or hundreds of hours, are fine. And the mob mentality against those were, was not warranted. So I don't think that the mob mentality was needed with Battlefront 2. What was needed is, uh, you know, the, the facts to be laid out properly and the proper authorities to take a look at it. And that's what was needed, not... The kind of, you know, anyway, we spend too much time on this. Um, <laughs> let's talk about sales. Everything must go. Sales, sales, sales. It's Black Friday and Cyber Monday. And oh my God, in a year with so many amazing games coming out, as I've said many times, um, the sales are incredible. Like specifically for Steam, um, I've taken, like, I don't, Usually, well, that's not true. I do buy stuff from Steam, but during the sales. But this time, I went crazy. Like, all of my games on my wish list were available. So I bought uh, Wolfenstein, Hob, Vanquish, actually, old game I wanted to try, Near Automata, that I do want to try because everyone's saying it's amazing, Hellblade, uh, and Fantasy Strike. And I have so many games to play. I went and finished uh, Mario, the last level, which was super hard, but super fun. So, so much fun, that game. Um, and uh, there's Cyber Monday sales on PlayStation with uh, VR consoles, uh, deals on Xbox One S's as well everywhere. Uh, so many things to to buy and play. I'm curious, do you have any games you've been playing rec recently? I know you, you finished uh, Assassin's Creed origins um anything you want to mention that you enjoyed that you want to talk about yeah so i mean i just as you said i finished assassin's creed origins that was a, a good game for me i've been a fan of the series for a while i think there were some good changes made to the series and then obviously the the whole kind of world building uh, around the game was really impressive and i quite enjoyed that i think the weakest points were probably the story and also some of the rpg elements may not have worked as well in terms of maybe some combat stuff or leveling up stuff i think you know if they work on that next year's game or whenever the next game is could be you know really good and yeah that was that was a fun game that was my sort of you know i put a lot of hours into that so that was a big game i played recently i've now moved on to mario odyssey which yes. um playing and so i've got to the um to the water the lake, sorry, no, I've got to the Wooded Kingdom and, and the Lake Kingdom, mm -hmm. um, or whatever it's called. I yeah, it's, it's either Lake Kingdom or Seaside Kingdom. It's one of the two with lots of water. If it's yeah, icy not, not water, it's uh, icy mm -hmm. is Lake Kingdom. Yeah, it'd be Lake Kingdom and then Wooded Kingdom. And yeah, it's good. I mean, I've, I've died about a hundred times already, but, <laughs> but apart from that, it's, 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 it's really fun. And I like how it introduces sort of, uh, first of all, the cat mechanic. But then also, um, you know, uses that across multiple different ways. And I'll be honest, I still have no idea how to get some of the um, uh, some of the stars. So I'll need to kind of, you know, work that out. But I've got all of the ones that it needs you to get, you know, to move on to each kingdom. But there's still some that I see up in really high places. And like, how do you get there? <laughs> but I, I guess that'll be the, the fun of it. It's yeah, it's really well done in the sense that it is never punishing. You know, I was. 
it it allows you to go forward and to explore and it gives you freedom and all it communicates is joy like when you capture a new enemy it's just fun to use and it never frustrates you and i did mention the last level uh the hidden one is mind-bogglingly difficult when you first encounter it it's like this is so difficult, it's dumb, and I'm never going to be able to do it. But you you keep banging your head against it. And the really interesting thing is that after a few uh, uh, dozen minutes, maybe a couple of hours, most of it becomes trivial. I mean, you, it's still difficult, and you maybe it's more than a couple of hours, but once you have learned how to deal with it, it's just trivial, and that's the case because the game has taught you all of those mechanics for the entire game, and, and it it has amazing game design that teaches you um, how to tackle the challenges it puts in fr- front of you, but it's so much joy to actually be able to conquer that level. And some people have mentioned, you know, it's kind of like Dark Souls, and I agree to an extent, but Dark Souls does this through frustration i think dark souls or you know all of those games um do this through making you sad and mario does this through making you happy and i think that is an incredible achievement um for on on nintendo's side so i played that as well um as i mentioned i bought fantasy strike and and hob i do want to talk about uh, wolfenstein but first Fantasy Strike, super fun, super simple fighting game. And um, some people might have heard about Rising Thunder, which was a game that was trying, basically endeavoring to make fighting games understandable and simple enough that anyone could go and play them. I think ultimately Fantasy Strike failed. Uh, I'm sorry, ultimately Rising Thunder failed. But Fantasy Strike is really fun. It it does away with so much of the... um, the the fat of fighting games and leaves only the main meat of goodness of fighting games. And uh, it's still in early access, so I wouldn't recommend anyone go buy it now. Uh, But I think it has a really interesting... I don't know how successful it's going to be, but it's a super interesting approach to fighting games. And as a fighting game fan, I think it could be a really fun game for people who are curious about the genre um, and who just want to have fun with friends. I don't know how deep it is yet. I have to still uh, look into it a little bit more. But I I was very, very surprised. Fantasy Strike, apart from having the worst name in the world, uh, possibly, <laughs> I think it's a terrible name. Um, it's some elements of the design of this game are insanely clever, like super, super clever. All of the, the moves you make are one button in one direction, basically. Um, and that's it. And still, it retains enough depth that is it it is interesting at least for a few hours um and so things like your health bar is not an obscure number in the hundreds you have like seven sections or eight sections and each hit will take off one and initially it's a little bit disorienting but really it works super well so anyway fantasy strike hob really nice game it's like this wonderful little gem of a uh, metroidvania slash zelda type thing lower budget it's from runic entertainment which it, it's so sad because the company actually had to close because i yeah. think that 
that game came out, it was not in great shape, the company, and the game came out, and it feels like they were trying to push it, make one last push, and it came out in a sea of amazing AAA games, so it was drowned. Um, any other year or time, I think Hub could have been a, a more significant success. It's so poetic, so beautiful, it's peaceful, it's, it's just, it's a little gem, and uh, it, it's really sad that they couldn't make their uh endeavor work but if you you know i I think it's worth picking up um if you're done with all of the thousands of other great games that are available this year um or if you want something for you know more quiet enjoyment and um it would be great on the nintendo switch but sadly i don't think that's going to happen because the company is not there anymore um It's unfortunate, yeah. Yeah. And finally, Wolfenstein 2. Um, so I haven't finished the game. I'm, I think, maybe five, six hours in. Uh, I passed that moment where things happen that everyone refers. And, I mean, I finished the first one last week. I had never finished it. I, I, I was very late to the, to the Wolfenstein party. And... I will say the second one is sort of a continuation of the first one in every way, but slightly improved in every way as well. It has the same faults. Um, the the gameplay itself is fun. It's not gonna, you know, uh, blow anyone's mind. It's just it's okay. It's fun. I've heard a lot of people saying, "Oh, you have to play an easy because what the hell? It's too difficult." Sometimes I don't find that at all. I think the difficulty is quite well. Uh, tuned i play on the middle level of difficulty and it works really well i have to uh you know restart levels sometimes but i've done the whole first game and at least until now the second game in that level um but the gameplay is not the main part the storytelling is so you know surprising for wolfenstein game and it's on the level of any other narrative focused game out there like it's just as good as uncharted just as good as any other of those games um pretty incredible how they managed to stay entirely true to the incredibly goofy spirit of wolfenstein which is basically for those who don't know um Wolfenstein is this dude, this soldier dude, going to kill Nazis that are half robots and half mechs. Like the last boss of the uh, Wolfenstein 3D is Mecha Hitler. So it's just wacky and dumb. And in this game, it is the same kind of wacky, but it builds up that world super well. And it makes BJ Blazkowicz, which was an icon on your basically a, a, a soup of, of pixels on your screen into a fully fledged character with emotions and relationships. And you understand the, 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 the character and how he relates to everything around him. And it's, ah, it, it is such a great, an incredible achievement um, for that game and that company. I mean, I could not recommend that game Yes, I could recommend a game more, but that is going to be a heavy, unless it goes to shit in the second half, but it's going to be a heavy contender for my best game of the year because it's just perfect in everything it tries to do. 
Uh, it's not perfect in every way, but everything it endeavors to do, it achieves. And that uh, uh, feeling of having Nazi-occupied America, I don't think I've ever seen so well-crafted before. I know there's The Man in the High Castle as a TV show, but I mean, it at least rivals that and, and sometimes even more cynically and well-written. How well it's written is out of this world. It's perfect pitch. It's never, you know, pushing it too far, maybe a little bit too far, but, you know, it mixes like heart-wrenching depictions of things with humor that is uh, uh, saddening at the same time. It's weird and super well done. And at the same time, I will say, I do a political show as well, which is, well, a news show, which is called The Phineas Club on, on the same uh, site. And having delved into that very in a very neutral and measured manner, I have to say, it is extremely satisfying to have a pop culture thing where Nazis are unquestionably bad people. And you don't have any ifs or buts or maybe or, you know, you know that's the reason or having to delve into stuff. No. They're bad. You shoot, even though there are some things that show the, you know, other aspects of it too, but you shoot them in the face and they're not, it it reminded me of the 80s when I grew up, you know, we realized back then that Nazis were actually bad. It seems people have forgotten. So I love this game for many, many, many reasons. Um, I can't wait to see what happens next. And it's an incredible achievement and Bethesda and Machine Games should be commended for it. So go buy Wolfenstein 2. Oh, actually buy Wolfenstein 1, very cheap right now. Um, and then buy Wolfenstein 2 when you're done with it. Um, it's not absolutely necessary to do the first one first, but I think it's worth it. Um, yeah. yeah. yeah Have- I've heard some good things about the game as well. And I think, you know, we need more games like that. You know, just kind of really grip you in and have a great story. Thank you, game thank you. Yeah. I I do think that it is uh one of the better ones of that uh that category. Um it's simple enough that it doesn't embarrass itself with like it's not an open world where you have like collect 15 million things. Like you do have collections uh of stuff, but it's not necessarily um uh the kind of thing that you need to achieve to like it's not filler. Or it is filler, but you don't need it. Um but you know, between Doom and this, it's kind of a an incredible, incredible achievement for Bethesda these past few years, and uh, can't wait to see what they're gonna be doing next. Um, all right, so let's move on. Before we move to quick news, um, I did want to ask you, since we have you here, uh, a few, a couple of months ago, there was this uh, NeoGaf uh, collapsing thing. It since came back up and then um reset era has sort of taken uh the the how in french we say take the relay but uh like the 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 it's now one of the main uh hubs for industry people it's a forum that people go to from the industry to discuss stuff um can you tell us a little bit because you were one of the people behind the creation of uh reset era or resetra reset how do we pronounce this I mean, it's both, I guess. <laughs> you know, it's like uh, Ubisoft or Ubisoft. All right, fair enough. 
So yeah, what was what what happened there? What was uh, what is it now? How's it going? All of that. Yeah, I mean, it, it all happened extremely fast, to be honest. Uh, the first week is still a bit of a blur, but uh, I guess you know what what happened was that when when Gaff went down, uh, there were a lot of people who were considering moving away to you know different platforms or looking for a new forum, and so. You know, this was really a kind of a community effort where we all decided just to to work together on a new forum. And so, you know, we had a huge response from people who were working in tech or, you know, web design or interest in helping out and, you know, policy making or whatever. Uh, just come on board and then just, you know, work on, on this great uh, forum, which um, was basically one of uh, Syrian, the, the admin It was his idea to kind of, you know, start working on that. And and so I think a lot of people were quick to rally behind it just because everyone was kind of forced into discords or whatever. And so there was a whole disjointed mess going on. And, and, and we have to say, um, maybe for people who don't know what NeoGAF was or maybe still is, it's really a place where, is it fair to say it was the the town hall for the industry? Um so many people from the actual industry, like developers and not just, and journalists and analysts and all of those were coming to that forum to discuss stuff from the industry, sometimes in a slightly unnerving manner. But it, yeah, is it fair mm -hmm. to say it's a town hall for the video games industry? Yeah, I mean, it's certainly the most popular, I guess, gaming forum out there. And, you know, it's referenced quite a lot in, in media and kind of, And, and stuff like that, and there were some prominent members on there. So, yeah, I mean, that's the general gist of of, of, of NeoGAF in general. I was a poster there uh, a couple of years back, and that, you know that was a good time. Um, the so the, I mean, the new form that we created was was effectively something that the community wanted as as a place where where they could post. And you know what was really awesome is seeing the response from over eighty different Discord communities. Um, you know, whether that be kind of, you know, sales communities who are interested in video game sales or kind of, uh, you know, certain game communities or, or whatever, you know, they all came together to, to migrate over to this new forum. And so far it's been a really great experience. And, and like I said, the whole, I don't know how everything came together so fast in that one week, but it did. And, you know, there's now 30,000 members on the forum and, and it's really awesome. I think it, it just goes to show that, You know, a forum is it's more about the the community and the content and and the posters, and not not so much about an individual or, or a, a brand name or something. Mm, yeah. So now nowadays, I think from my experience, maybe it's because I, I follow some of the people that went there. It seems to me that um, Resetera is basically the de facto um, new industry town hall uh, to an extent. But um, it's it's definitely super active, and um, there are there's lots of good people there. You also have a less uh, lenient policy, I would say. Like it's possible to to post anonymously, but you do have some uh, uh, safeguards in place. Is is that fair to say? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people were looking for a new forum to join, and so. You know, reset it being the place where a lot of creators went and where a lot of the community went. It meant that, you know, that attracted a lot of people to it. And, and so it, it's great to see that we've got 
so many people signed up and posting and mm. and you know we we do want to create a place where it's i guess not as as uh heavy handed or or where people will be banned for voicing you know random or sudden opinions um we we do want to make this place a welcoming place for everyone and uh, you know a place where the moderation is there but it's it's done in a way that's transparent and open and you know so some stuff that we've done for example is have it so that users are not given warnings before they're banned in most cases um if they are banned it's usually a 24-hour ban depending on the depending on the content or, or the offending post and all these messages are public so you'll be able to see why users are banned why they're um why they've been warned and, and ho- hopefully that helps shape the conversation so that we can get some really great uh content on there and some really great conversations going and i think that you know looking at the forum over the past month it, it's done really well in that regard and there's a lot of people who are sharing their thoughts on, on things you know sharing various news items and just having a great general discussion and so yeah i mean i'm, I'm super happy with, with how it's turning out how do you handle um, anonymity? Because there was, I mean, one of the great things on NeoGAF was the leaks, right? We There would be people sure. who anonymously went and, and leaked stuff that maybe they weren't supposed to. Um, and my understanding is that on Resetera, you have a little bit less of that anonymity. Um, or maybe there are special measures for some people, Um How do you handle those? Do you, are, can we expect to get some weird uh, leaks there? Or, or is that something you've forgone for uh, making sure that people were a little bit more responsible for what they were saying? You know, I think leaks in general is something that you can't really police across the internet. You're going to get them on Reddit. You're going to get them posted everywhere. And so they'll eventually make their way to, to reset area as well. Whether it's a new thread or just a post, you know, linking to a different website. Right. Um, So, I mean, that that's going to happen. You know, the, what we do have in place and what we're trying to work on is a verification uh, program for those that do work in the industry. And so how that will work is that it'll allow people to, um, you know, verify their role. So if they're a journalist or a developer or whatever, they can uh, verify through, through us and they would get, then get a verified tag on their account. And so what that does is that gives them, uh, you know, a bit of a, a voice and that gives them more authenticity behind their posts. And so when they do post in a thread about a certain thing, um, you know, you know that they're talking from a place where they have the knowledge to do so. Mm. And so that gives them, that gives posters the ability to trust them a bit more and in turn to actually learn from them and vice versa. And so we're trying to help bridge the gap between, you know, the forum community and the games industry. And further on that, we're looking to, introduce sort of a, a Q&A sort of um, product or, or whatever. And so similar feature, to sort of feature, yes, that's it. Sorry. Um, and similar to what Reddit do with, you know, AMAs, is something that we're going to try and do here. And it's going to be with people in the games industry. And it'll be sort of, you know, where users can ask questions um, that they want answers to or that they want to learn about. And, you know, people in the industry can, can respond. And so that's something that we're planning to roll out Pretty soon. That's really cool. So you you you're looking at the forum not as a well, that's the forum and that's it, but you're planning on adding features as time goes on, or is it just that this one was something you thought of and you're implementing, and may- maybe there won't be any additional ones in the future? Well, I think you know 
we always listen to what the community wants. And so when we when we were actually building this forum, we had a lot of suggestions come in as to, you know, how best to do certain things or, or what ideas could work in the future. And so we've been looking at them and kind of talking with people about them. And so, you know, there's we have a, a plan in place to keep adding features to the forum. Um, one, so the community is, is um, you know, getting what they want, but two, so that other people can actually sign in, so sign up and join in um, with those with those things. And so, you know, the Q&A, for example, is one of those ideas that, you know, we thought was great, the community thought was great, and so we're now starting to implement that. It's not something we're doing right this second, but in the future, you'll see that it, you know, it happens. Um, so... Yeah, that that all sounds really cool, but it does lead me to a natural question, um, sure. which is: this all sounds like a huge amount of work. Um, mm -hmm. Is are you planning on eventually monetizing all of this, or like how is it going to work? Because you have lots of people working on it, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, the good, the good thing is we've got a really great team of admins and, and moderators who are you know to help, and have put a lot of time and dedication into actually making this work. And so, you know, first of all, we're, you know, I think everyone is thankful that the community and, and the mods and the admins are doing a really great job on this. And in terms of monetization, we haven't really spoken about that at this point, purely because that hasn't been our main thought. Our main thought has been, you know, how do we get this forum up and running? How do we get right. people signing up? How do you make it so the forum doesn't crash every five seconds? You know, those technical questions and kind of community questions. And so the admin has... Sirium, in this case, who's the main owner of the website, has decided that he's going to fund it through to the end of the year uh, by himself, and that's really awesome of him. And, you know, if we are going to look into monetization in the future, um, we'll announce that at a later date, probably in the new year, because we still need to actually have the discussions around, you know, how that would work. Mm. Because, as I say, right now, our, our main concern is just about making the forum happen. Right, and I think the so, past month has, has proved that you know we've been able to do that. So the, you're still in let's build it because we want it mode, which is probably a good thing. Um, yeah, I mean that, that's the, that's the entire philosophy behind this this forum is that people wanted a place where they could, you know, continue posting as they had perhaps on, on different forums um, or on different communities, and there was a huge rally of, of of different communities who were happy to migrate here for that very reason, and so. That's what we've been working towards, and, and I think, you know, as as you can see, it's it's really doing well. Yeah, yeah. And for those listeners who who might be thinking, well, this is a little bit arcane. I don't know why why this is uh, important. It's really, you know, I would uh, mention a, a lot, like a huge amount. Like there are two. Um, centers of the gaming news the underground gaming news uh in on the internet it's reddit as always for everything um but more importantly uh for the past few years neogaf was a huge uh element of that and with it losing some of its uh importance it looks like reset era is poised to maybe take up that mantle so um it definitely is a big part of the news cycle for the v-game industry so that's something to pay attention to so anyway um thank you for those details uh, daniel and let's move on to right. a few quick uh, bits of news uh the first one is hellblade uh becoming 
profitable in three months. It reached 500K sales. And for those who don't know, Hellblade is... Um, it's notable because it's a game that was uh, started as a, how can I put it, like a new way of making quote-unquote AAA games. Um, there's this company called Ninja Theory that was th saying, we want to make AAA games, but we don't have the budget for a AAA game, but we're going to make it 20 people with a much smaller budget, and it's still going to be AAA. And so because of that, I think half factual observation, half marketing messaging, um, it's being presented as an alternative to AAA um, developing development by a lot of gamers in the industry. And I do think that's a little bit disingenuous. I mean, I haven't played it yet. I will. But it seems to me from what I've seen that... It's not really a triple A. I mean, it has great... When it first started a couple of years ago, it was a little bit more... Um, a little bit more hmm, truthful than it is today. But today we have a lot of those mid-range games that are very well developed, very well designed. You have kick-ass graphics, but the scope is still the scope of a double A game. And it seems like this one is fits in that category more. Um, but so it's become profitable, which is great. It just became profitable after three months. Uh, but I also know that you've been a little bit, I don't want to say critical, but, um, you've had, you've been adding some nuance to that narrative of Hellblade as a AAA success on Twitter. And I'm curious to hear more. What's your take on that game and its, uh, its model and the way it's been, it's, it's sold? Yeah, I mean, the game itself is, is really incredible in terms of what they've been able to pull off. You know, you look at the game, I guess, you know, from the graphical point of view, and it is up there with some of the top, you know, AAA games. You look at it from animations, and, and those are really impressive as well. Um, you look at the gameplay, and again, that's got a lot of uh, good elements there as well. The um, I, I agree with you on the scope in terms of it's, yes, it's, it's a really impressive game, but the amount of content is more similar to what, uh, you know, you get out of a, a single-player linear narrative story game instead of maybe a open world or... Not that every game needs to be open world, but, but you know, it, it's not on the scale or scope of some of the bigger and larger AAA titles that we see today. Um, but it's it certainly, you know, I'd class it as indie AAA. So it is sort of bridging a sort of a gap. But um, I think my criticisms on Twitter is that a lot of people are looking at what Hellblade has done and then applying that to companies like EA or uh, Ubisoft, Activision, or Take-Two, and saying, well, why can't they do it? And I think that's a bit of a of a stretch in terms of, of you know, comparing the two so um, so closely like that. You know, with, with Ninja Theory here, they've, they've got a team of 20 people working on the game. So first of all, the, the costs on that are fairly low. Um, they've also got a number of of side projects that they're working on at the same time, which helps fund the game, and they've got the funding for that. Um, at the same time as well, you know, the game still costs around $10 million to actually make, based on the 500k break-even point. So it's still a very expensive game, and that's not something that every company can, um, you know, do, especially indie, and especially without the prior experience or, or proprietary tools that uh, you know, Ninja Theory have. And so I think that what they've done is really exceptional, but 
their case study only applies to a few certain companies, mostly indies who are you know quite large have have a good number of employees, and secondly those who are working on external projects or other projects and have the funding to spend you know ten million or so on the game. Mm. So you know not to downplay what they've done, but at the, at the end of the day. They still need to sell 500k to break even, and they've only just done that. So yes, they're profitable, but they're not—they're not making the sort of profit that a AAA would uh, from you know, unit sales or whatever. And the fact that it's taken them some time to get the 500k does show that you know it, it's it's not as clear cut as being a success as I think a lot of people think it is. Mm. You I know, think when that... he... yeah, go ahead. When you have a triple A game where you're spending forty, fifty million dollars in into that, I think a lot of people don't realise, for example, with Tomb Raider, uh, twenty thirteen, you know, there was that whole hubbub about okay, it didn't meet expectations, but that doesn't mean that it wasn't profitable, like Hellblade was, it just means that it didn't actually sell over the amount it needed to generate the amount of profit that they wanted from that. And so I think Hellblade is sort of a similar situation where yes it's profitable, but it hasn't sold over that amount significantly or well set over that significantly um to make this something that's viable without that external development support in terms of external projects and without having funding already there they're saying they're ahead of their projected sales um what ninja's theory is saying is well we were expecting to break even in six months and we're now breaking even in in three months so i mean this is my understanding is it's good for them, but I think the expectations of a big, huge developer like EA or Ubisoft or Activision are a little bit different. The, the, the comparison I often give is, let's say, you know, different people will, will have different methods of operating or of, you know, working. And if you're an artist and we say, well, we'll give you a hundred bucks to draw this thing for me for my website, maybe you'll be interested. But maybe if you're a sales guy and you make, I don't know, 5K a, a month and someone tells you, well, I'll give you a hundred bucks to work for me for one day, you know, or, or a week, maybe you're going to say, I'm sorry, you know, I don't have time. A hundred bucks doesn't really interest me. So I think those applying the same values for everyone and for every game developer in the industry is kind of misguided. And what's great for Ninja Theory isn't necessarily great for Ubisoft and vice versa. I mean, the kind of games that Ubisoft makes might not interest uh, Ninja Theory. They might think, well, yeah, that's great. And you're going to make 15 billion out of this, but that's not the kind of game I want to make. Um, so yeah, basically coming back to your point that some people are taking this to say, well, every game could be made like this, could be made like this. That's not like, I don't think that's a healthy way of looking at things. If you see one thing that works or doesn't, and you, and you say, we should make all of it like this because that's what I think is valuable. It's a, it's not a great, I mean, I don't want to say it's dangerous, but it sure. is not great. Yeah. You've got to remember as well that, you know, these AAA companies are aiming for the top of the market and for, you know, the most sales and the most market share. And so I think people forget the kind of the mid-tier decline between last gen and, and this gen. You know, where companies like THQ went out of business. And the fact is they were producing multiple games on, on you know, kind of medium budgets, but they weren't selling very well. And so in the end, they 
just didn't, didn't have the cash to make any more. And so, you know, especially if one big if one game bombs, like with THQ, that, that can spell the end of the company. So it's still very mm. risky for them. And it's not something that can be applied across the industry. And at the end of the day, you've got companies like Ubisoft, for example, who do still have small teams working on games, whether that's stuff like Grow Up or uh, Atomega, which is their PC shooter, which came out. You know, that was made by 15 people, I think. Um, and, and at the end of the day, you look at those games and you realize that actually the scope of those games isn't very big. The budget in those games isn't very big. And ultimately, the, the sales of those games isn't very big. You're not gonna, Not every indie game is going to be Minecraft. You know, just because it's indie or whatever, mm. uh, or, or has AAA values or AAA production values, usually the more you spend on the game, whether it's in in, in marketing or, or in development, means you get a better, bigger scope, better reach, more sales, more revenue, more you know whatever, more profit. Um, and so, doing it on a much smaller scale, like with Hellblade, for example, you can see already it's not selling multi millions like. AAA companies would expect out of their games. Um, it's only selling 500k. It'll probably get 2 million, and it'll probably do you know well for what it is, but it's not something that can be replicated across mm. every company. There are certain companies I can think of that would actually probably benefit from something like that and can actually do well, but that's a handful. Yeah. And I mean, there is a very healthy indie market that didn't exist that way a few years ago, and that can be stretched into possibly um, for some of the companies or that maybe they're not quite indie uh, anymore, but there are a few companies that could be in that uh, range of types of production or that could move into that. And certainly Ninja Theory is encouraging everyone to do it and, and sharing the knowledge of how they manage to do it. So I hope oh, yeah. they, that, they, yeah. That aspect is great. The fact they've been so open about it, the fact that they've said that this is what we're doing, this is how we're doing it, this is what works, this isn't what works. That's a huge resource for the industry and for, for you know gamers in general. And just being able to understand that and kind of look at what they're doing and seeing actually, you know what, it, it does work in some cases. That's great because that means that companies that, that can scale up to that can follow a sort of similar pattern or similar kind of um, development uh, process and hopefully be successful there. But at the same time, like I said, you know, there are thousands of indie games that release every month or you know, every every year. And the majority of them don't sell some level of AAA games. And that's mm. why this sort of stuff just you can't blanket statement and say, Well, okay, well, if twenty people can make this game, uh, why can't Activision make a game with ten times less the budget and sell just mm. as much as they were before? I mean one example I like to use a lot is Resident Evil Seven. With Resident Evil Seven they reduced the budget, they reduced the scope, they reduced the marketing on it, and it actually underperformed compared to what Capcom were expecting. Um, oh, really? I thought Resident Evil 7 was a great success. It did well, but it underperformed what they were expecting. Mm. doesn't mean it didn't do well, but it, but the fact that they... Basically, they expected to do sort of similar to Resident Evil, Resident Evil 6, or actually, they expected to do a bit less than that, but it actually did a, it actually did a bit worse than what they were expecting mm. um, out, of, out of the gate. Not to say it won't sell well in the future with all the DLC and whatever, but... You know, th there is a reason why it didn't sell as much, and that's because they stripped out the multiplayer, they reduced the scope, they made it first person, they took a lot of risks with it, and they changed the game up a lot, and they reduced the scope and the budget, and all of that contributed to actually selling less instead of more. All right, let's move on to PUBG. And uh, so it's already available in China, but it's going to change because of 
regulations to align with socialist values, which I'm very curious about. Um, I know there are a few other games that were changed in in the same way with like there were banners for the Communist Party in game and like fighting for truth and communism and like these kinds of setups. Uh, there's also Tencent developing a new battle royale game called Europa, um, which I'm guessing they're going to bring out to the West at some point, but it's pretty good looking. And uh, and also the fact that Tencent um, it, it just crossed the $500 billion uh, valuation. Um, and there are only very few companies that are that valuable in the world, most of them being, you know, the Googles and Apples of the world. Um, but yeah, first that PUBG aligning with socialist core values what what does that even mean so it goes back to what i was talking about earlier and, and the fact that china's government is is very involved when it comes to regulating you know all uh, all sectors of entertainment uh, so in this case video games and so what they'll what they'll do is is put out regulations um in order to encourage you know, healthy development of games. So that's why games, for example, like Grand Theft Auto, uh, would not be officially approved for release in China because they promote, you know, a lot of um, things like, you know, I guess gambling or prostitution or, or whatever, you know, that, that would be deemed to be um, yeah, immoral, unhealthy. Yeah, immoral and unhealthy, illegal or whatever uh, compared to China's laws. And so a lot of games... Um, do you have to sort of skirt that line? And you'll find that when a company wants to bring a game to China, there's a lot that they have to do compared to any other country. Uh, you know, first of all, because of localization and different language. Second, because of regulations. Third, because of how the market is completely different and the business models that they have to employ. So there's a lot that needs to go into consideration when it comes to bringing games to China. And so one of these is the fact that there are regulations around what is acceptable in games and what isn't. And so that's why, just to give a random example here, with Counter-Strike Global Offensive, when that came to to China, they had to remove um, uh, the blood color from the game. So instead of red blood, it was black or green. I can't remember exactly which one. That um, seems they've like also... stuff we've seen before in, like, in uh, Germany, for example, the blood sure, was often... Yeah. Yeah. So or even it, in Mortal Kombat in... in on Super Nintendo, I think the blood was replaced with sweat or stuff like that. So that seems tame. Yeah, I mean, you'll, you'll see stuff like that. And you'll see, you know, perhaps certain imagery that's removed because it seemed offensive. Or certain elements that promote, you know, uh, gambling that's removed or, or whatever. Mm. Um, and so in this case, you know, the the CADPA, which is the China kind of audiovisual uh, department, decided that... You know, they, they want to promote healthy uh, usage of, of uh, Battle Royale genre games. And so in, in doing that, they wanted to make it so that, you know, it goes with the correct values that China has. It um, it's, it's not unhealthy towards uh, gamers who are under 18. And so that it's, you know, fits in with all the other content laws or whatever. And so you'll notice that some of the games in China, rather than being Battle Royale games, they're more survival games. Well, they're more sort of military training games, so you don't. Oh, so you put it you in a context of yeah, yeah. Mm. So they'll they'll change the game up slightly to make it different. So it's not it's not a you know fight to the death. It's a military training exercise on on an island, and 
you know, when you're short, you know, like you're dead, you're just out of the game. Mm. Stuff like that. So you'll notice those small changes. And at the end of the day, the game is still the same in terms of the gameplay or whatever. But certain elements are removed, certain, certain elements have changed. Um, and that just allows you to have a release there a lot quicker and a lot easier. You find that a lot of it is actually self-censorship as well. So the rules are vague enough to, you know, where companies will self-censor and actually remove stuff that maybe wouldn't need to be removed just so that they can get a release a lot quicker and, you know, um, get that get that ball rolling. Right. I see. Um, yeah, that's that's really interesting. I, I guess it would work just as well as a military exercise or something like that, but... It's if you want to, yeah. Anyway, there's lots of stuff to discuss there, but we're running late, so I think we're gonna um, bring this to a close fairly soon. Unless you want to add stuff to the Europa Battle Royale game or Tencent in general. Yeah, I mean, you know, the Battle Royale genre has completely blown up um, thanks to Playland Battlegrounds, but also before that, H1Z1, you know, King of the Kill. And I think that a lot of companies, both in China and the West, are going to jump on this trend. We've already seen it with you know, Epic Games and Fortnite. We've seen it with uh, Rockstar Games with Grand Theft Auto and their sort of mode in there. You know, and in in China, Tencent and NetEase are getting in on the trend. So I don't think this is something that's going away anytime soon. I think it'll be interesting to see if any games can, you know, do as well as PUBG or even, you know, perform as well or, or send as well. And I think that'll be something that's really interesting to watch. And, and Tencent is a huge company in China. I, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but mainly on the based on the fact that you need a license to operate in China and Tencent and NetEase, but Tencent is one of the big dogs there. So many of the Western developers, if they want to operate in China and get all of that precious Chinese money, they have to go through one of those. Um, but do you think we're going to see Tencent getting big in is that the next step basically are we going to see games published by tencent in the west as well um maybe brought from china or some people have tried and it's not always successful but that game europa europa for example seemed like it could be successful but maybe there are others but they're getting to a size where it would be completely reasonable for them to try and get a, a bite of the western market too do you think that's something that's going to happen yeah, I mean, Tencent is, is huge in China. So they, they already have a number of self-developed self games um, that they put out there themselves. In addition to that, as you say, yes, they work with partners, Western companies to localize games there. Um, in addition to that, they also invest in various companies, such as Supercell, Epic Games, etc., um, and you know, reap the rewards from that. So and maybe so, that's going to be their strategy for the West, is to invest in existing actors uh, which they've already started doing. but um. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the ways that they're doing it. They also work with a number of partners, for example, Garena and Southeast Asia, and distributing games there. You know, Tencent completely dominates China when it comes to games. And I think we're going to start to see them look to the West, but it might not be as direct as people think. So, yes, mm. it'll be through investments. It'll be through, um, you know, partners and, and, and publishing games through them. And then at the same time, we'll also see Tencent, you know, try and bring their own games over, see how they do. I think there's a, there's a huge difference in the, to in the types of games that appeal to China and the games that appeal to the West. And so I think it'll be up to Tencent to sort of, you know, play around those games and perhaps create custom versions or, or you know, different versions that, that, um, that do well in the West. Right. 
All right. Uh, I think that's going to be it for us. Uh, we could have talked about GT Sport adding a career mode by the end of the year, which is cool. Uh, Animal Crossing Pocket Camp came out, had server errors. Hopefully they're resolved now, but that's a thing as well. Uh, Sonic Forces, which is a poor game, uh, is still gaining... Um, how can I put it? Like the community's favor by including the Sanic Hedgehog meme, which is really fun. You can go look <laughs> it up if you know that. That's that's really silly. Um, Hulu is working on a live action Hitman Hitman series. Could happen. Mario movie deal might be in the works with the studio that made the the Minions movies. I could see that being fun. Um, and what else? Oh, very quickly, Gazillion. The company um, dismissed the Marvel Heroes team after announcing the game would be closed at the end of the year. They announced this like the day before Thanksgiving in the US, which is the best way if you want that news to go under the radar, which it did because everyone was away for Thanksgiving. That's kind of the slimy move, I think. Um, so I wanted to mention it. Yeah. Isn't it? I mean, the PR-wise, that's definitely a technique, right? They That's not random i think yeah i think they were just um sweeping it doing what's best for the business which (laughs) wasn't the best thing anyway yeah i mean we knew the game was going to close but the the team being dismissed on that specific day like they show up and they're like yep you're done go home it's kind of crappy um anyway but um on the other end of this uh the publisher for axiom verge uh which is an indie game was donating 75 percent of its uh profits to the um developer which axiom verge is a very small indie metroidvania that was published in on many many uh platforms and um the the developer tom hap his son is sick and um, they, they they didn't want to talk about it. The publisher is Bad Law, Badland Games. They didn't want to talk about it because they didn't want to be seen as using it as a, a, a crappy kind of promotion method. But they've been donating a lot of the profits to him so that he can take care of his son, which there you go. There's a crappy story and a heartwarming story. So uh, good job, Badland Games. That's mighty fine of you when we encourage you and applaud you. Um, all right, that's it for the show. Uh, very lengthy and interesting show, I hope. Uh, before we leave, Danielle, would you tell people where they can find you on the internet if they want more from you? Sure. So, um, I have a Twitter account which I post on uh, fairly regularly. I think that's probably the best place. So, um, that's at uh, EX. I'm sure it'll be in the notes underneath the podcast, right? Yep, absolutely. And then also, yeah, I mean, um, as you mentioned at the beginning, I'm analyst from Nico Partners. Um, so that's my kind of uh, nicopartners.com to see some of the services that we offer. And then also there's a blog on there, which I run and put stuff on. I think it's quite interesting. So check it out. Excellent. Uh, so as you mentioned, uh, the best way to get in touch is the, or to start uh, as a starting point is the Twitter account. And that will be in the show notes. 
Uh, my awesome. Twitter account is not Patrick. Uh, you can also find me under that name on Facebook. And you will have the show notes at frenchspin.com where you will also find the other shows I produce. I mentioned the Phileas Club, which is a really interesting, if I may say so myself, uh, podcast about world news where we try to be measured and get everyone's opinions in there. We recently did an episode about life as a woman, which I think went well i was super nervous about it but uh it's it's gotten great feedback so if you think that's something you might be interested in learning more about and listening to what it actually is to be a woman in western societies these days i would encourage you to listen to that and as i mentioned it was very nervous for me but i think it went well um but getting back to the the this show pixels if you enjoy it you might want to go on iTunes, for example, and leave a review as Holistic Robot did. He says, the best gaming podcast I listen to. Wow, that's high praise because there are really good podcasts out there. Um, seriously, Patrick brings his passion for gaming to the discussions and invites a variety of guests to share their thoughts on gaming and gaming news. I may not always agree or even understand, parentheses, fighting games, Patrick, really? Uh, but it's always fun regardless. Well, maybe uh, Fantasy Strike is going to be the game for you. But thank you. Yes, we try to do this um, in the most serious slash passionate way there is. And I hope you appreciate the kind of reflection, measure, thought that goes into the show. If you do, you can uh, let us know on Twitter or just, you know, let your friends know. They should listen to this show on social media or just in in. Uh, person that's the most difficult thing with podcasts is it's to reach new people so if you enjoy it tell a friend or tell many friends or just start playing the podcast in uh, your working open space and just don't let anyone turn it down so that they get invaded with the goodness of the show or maybe don't do that but tell people it's fun um regardless thank you very much for listening uh we hope you will join us again in about a couple of weeks when we come back until then we send to all of you many good thoughts and hugs and kisses bye on a budget we still deserve nice things quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands 
They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.